This is Welcome Home Radio from the Fresno Association of Realtors on 940 ESPN. Well, good morning and welcome to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host on our Valley's most informative real estate talk show. This hour is being brought to you by the Fresno Association of Realtors. And the goal that we have is to provide you, our listeners, the real facts, the real stats about our local market. You wouldn't go into a football game without a well-prepared game plan. Well, real estate's no different. We will provide you with the information that will help you make that well-prepared game plan so you'll be a winner in the real estate market. And to help me with that today, we have brought in Ken Newfeld. He is a uh, realtor here in the local area. You've been with London Properties for many, many years. And before that, I, you're going to be amazed. I remember this. You were with Cal Real. Better Homes and Gardens. <clears throat> okay. Yes. But that was the whole name, Cal Real Better Homes and Garden. Yeah. And um, so when did you start in real estate, Ken? I started in 1980 um, when the market was starting to go downhill and interest rates were going uphill. By uphill, what do we mean? They, they, did they start at like three and go up to four? No, they weren't anywhere near three. They, <laughs> they were probably more like uh, 10 or 11. And they ended up going up to 18 or 21, actually. And, and uh, we didn't go to banks very often those years. Yeah, yeah. It, in fact, if it wasn't for the resiliency and the creativity of realtors figuring out how, well, Maybe the buyer can assume the seller's existing loan that's at 9% and do an owner carry. At 12%. Yeah, and then blend them out and it comes out to an 11, which is better than the 13 that they could get. I, we wouldn't have made any sales. We did a lot of uh, what was known as creative financing where uh, it was more possible for buyers to assume existing loans at that time too. That, that, that uh, uh, The provision for that has stopped unfortunately or fortunately whatever that's the that is the case yeah and what ken's referring to see i even remember this the wellencamp decision cynthia wellencamp versus the bank or versus the bank of america okay you had me there i didn't remember her first name <laughs> but i do remember it was against bank of america and basically it it said that my loan is assumable regardless of what the paper says yeah and California Supreme Court went for it and passed it. And actually, it, and it got overturned a few years later. But 1989 is when it got overturned. Well, you came well prepared today, Ken. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or you just have this at the top of your head. I, I think that's it. <laughs> well, uh, I've lived all this stuff. So, so have you, you know. So <laughs> yeah. we're just uh, regurgitating our past. Ah, that's right. Okay, but anyway, so during the 1980s, it gave us a little bit of time to uh, weather those really high interest rates because we were able to do those assumable loans. <clears throat> Let's go back to before you and I even started, around the year 1913, I believe it was, when the National Association of Realtors came up with a thing called the Code of Ethics. 
I think I have the year wrong, don't I? No, you have the year correct. It's 1913. Oh, wow. The National Association of Realtors, which was a relatively new organization at that time. I believe they started in about 1907. So early on in the history of the National Association of Realtors, our um, association uh, decided, and rightly so, that we needed to have a code of ethics to distinguish the realtor members from other uh, persons who were engaged in real estate sales because not everybody who has a real estate license is a realtor. And I think it's interesting to note that this is a voluntary organization. So it's not a law, the, the, the rules that they have with the code of ethics. So if somebody says, well, I don't want to be ethical like that. <laughs> so they don't have to be as long as they're not breaking a law. Um, but so this is a voluntary organization. Well, it's sort of voluntary. Um, if I can just uh, elaborate, twist a little bit there. And that is that the brokers of record are the ones who determine membership in the National Association of Realtors. So all of their licensees within that brokerage firm do have to become members of the National Association of Realtors and subscribe to the Code of Ethics. Tell us what this Code of Ethics is all about. Well, the Code of Ethics is it's kind of a, almost a lengthy document that all the realtors, by the way, are required to take a course in this when they first join the association. And um, I've been privileged to actually teach the course on this to new orientees for a number of years. So the Code of Ethics basically has 17 articles in it in three different sections. So the basic broad sections are duties to clients and customers, that's section one. The section two is duties to the public. And the third section is duties to other realtors. Let me ask this question. What would be the difference between duties to the public and duties to the clients? Well, with the we don't have a client relationship with the entire public. So we have, but we have responsibilities to the entire public before they become um, clients or customers of ours. Whereas once we have clients or customers who are we're actively involved in a real estate transaction, that's where the section one uh, articles would come in because those prescribe what our duties are to those people with whom we already have an agency relationship. Okay, I see. So um, why did they think they even needed one back in 1913? Well, from what I, I haven't studied American history that much, but from what I've what I've you don't know this from personal knowledge. No, well, it was <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 1913. Uh, I was not thought of yet. Uh, All right. Um, but from what I understand is uh, the early 1900s were kind of the Wild West in terms of uh, California. Uh, California was being uh, settled with uh, people from uh, the Midwest. And many people who came to settle here bought property sight unseen. They were given lots of promises. They were going to arrive at the land of milk and honey. And they came into the central California desert. And they hadn't seen any disclosure forms regarding what they would expect. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it was the wild, wild west. We needed something to tame it. Tame it, yes, and to regulate and to, to set us apart from, from others who were engaged in the sale of real estate as well, but not members of our association. So this kind of reminds me of when 
my son was a teenager and he wanted to be able to do anything. And of course he said, hey, we're free here in America. And I said, yeah, you are free inside these lines. Keep it between the lines. Don't, you know, you could do what you want. You could eat slow, eat fast, do what you want. Just keep it between the lines. And, and that's kind of what this started, right? Like there is, and I know we talked about this earlier, like free speech. Yeah, okay, you can't yell fire in the middle of a crowded theater, um, even though you might say, well, hey, that's my First Amendment rights because it endangers others. Right, so it is operating within the lines, as you say. Yeah. And that's what we're, that's what our code of ethics is all about as well. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the duty to the client. Well, the number one duty to the client, and which also happens to be the number one article in the code of ethics, is that we are there to promote and protect, in quotes, the interests of our client. Promoting and protecting the interests of the client is number one. And if we do nothing else in terms of professionalism, I've always told our new students that if we just did that, just protected and, and promoted our client's interest, we would take care of most of the ethical queries uh, in our business. Mm-hmm. I gotta just say this. I, I'm really glad that we do have a code of ethics because it gives us guidelines it, it, to do the right thing. Um, I recently had one where my client um, received too much money out of escrow to the detriment of the buyer. Um, but we, she did the right thing. She was ethical, but I think I did the right thing by bringing it to her attention. And, and you know, she said, let's give the money back to the buyer. You bring up a very good point because the code of ethics not only addresses the, the duty to promote and protect the client's interest, but we also are to treat all f- parties fairly, which is what happened in the illustration that you just gave. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I'm just glad, really glad my client went along with that because she was not bound by the code of ethics. Well, she was an honorable client, obviously. Yes, she was. (laughs) All right. So um, give us an example of being, uh, having a duty to your client in protecting them. Well, um, an example that I use, and you've maybe heard me use this one, uh, is I've heard you once or twice over the years, Ken. <laughs> you know, as a as a realtor taking a listing for a seller, we are promising to we're committing to get a certain list price for the client. So we list the property, say for three hundred thousand. We run into cases very often where somebody else or a buyer might say to us, "Well, you know, what will the seller really take?" Well, we've signed on the dotted line that we're to obtain a a buyer, and the the list price is three hundred thousand. So, what I've told the uh, people in my class is, if if they ask you what what will the seller really take on a three hundred thousand dollar listing, the answer is they'll take three hundred thousand because that's what they listed it for. Yeah. I have a really good story that I learned a long time ago. One of my very first listings ever was a $12,500 mobile home. 
And I remember uh, the seller, big, tall, gruff guy, and I was just this young kid realtor. And he looks down at me and he goes, I ain't budging off that price. Don't even bring me an offer that's less than 12500 I said, oh, okay, I won't. <laughs> well, sure enough, somebody makes them an offer of $7,000. Well, by law, I have to present all offers. And that's by law, not by code of ethics. California. It is California law. And by the way, it is also in the code of ethics. We are to present all offers up till the time of closing, which is an interesting concept as well. Go yeah. ahead. Yeah. He took the $7,000 offer that I presented to him, and I said, what happened? He goes, what you don't understand is my wife just went in the hospital. I need to get out. I need to uh, need the cash, and I need to move on in life. So things happen. Things change. Yeah. With that, we're going to go to our first commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. If I could just come in, I swear. Won't take nothing but a memory from the house that built me. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. And here in the studio with me, we have Ken Newfeld, a realtor with London Properties, but also an expert on professional standards. I say that because you are the chairman for our local association for professional standards and you sit on those committees at the state and national level. Is that? Yes, I do. So you've learned a thing or two. Uh, yes, and we've seen a thing or two. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, all right, so in the first part of the show, we talked about the code of ethics and um, uh, you know why it came about, how it was important, and what our duties to the clients are. What's our duties to the general public? To the general public, the very first article in this section having to do with the general public is that our job is not to deny equal professional services to any person for reasons of race, color, religion, sex, handicap, familial status, national origin, sexual orientation, or gender identity. That's a direct quote from the code, Article 10. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't that also law? It is law, yes. It is uh, the uh, part of the Fair Housing Act, which we uphold, and we are and, and our license requires us to uphold that as well. Okay. So, so in many cases, the code of ethics coincides with law, but in some cases, it even goes beyond law. It does, and in fact... Uh, in the history, uh, the Code of Ethics has been a, a living document and has changed over the years as societal changes occur. And actually, our Code of Ethics was ahead of some, uh, of some uh, national laws with regard to fair housing when, when it came to protecting uh, persons of gender identity, for example. We were there before the law was there. I see. And I think it's important for our listeners to know, too, that this is the Code of Ethics is the National Association of Realtors. So that's a nationwide thing. Many real estate laws are statewide. So what we do in California may be different in uh, Utah. Correct. Yes. All right. 
So let's get into this part because there was a recent change just in the last month to one uh, Article 10 uh, of the uh, duties to the public. Can you tell us about that one? Yes. Well, this has been a, a rather tumultuous year, as we were talking about before the show, Don. A lot of things have happened, including the COVID pandemic, and then we've also had some racial unrest. So the, the whole area of race relations has come to the foreground, and the National Association of Realtors has not shied away from dealing with this. Our code I mean, has always said that we're going to treat all people equally, regardless of race, uh, but the the code up till now has been interpreted that we have this behavior expectation only within the confines of the real estate transaction. So the code of ethics applies to us in the real estate transaction. Now during this past year, many of our associations of realtors have got complaints, got calls in their offices saying, "Hey, this so and so is y using." Uh, hateful speech or discriminatory speech on their social media, for example, and they are also identified as realtors. Is that okay? And so the National Association of Realtors and the Professional Standards of Committee dealt with this question this year, and the long and short of it was that a uh, new article was added to the Code of Ethics which said realtors must not use harassing speech hate speech, epithets, or slurs based on race, color, religion, sex, handicap, familial status, national origin, sexual orientation, or gender identity. So it expanded that to say we are not to use harassing speech, and then they took it one step further in the arbitration manual, which is the manual that the codes of ethics are, uh, are uh, interpreted, that said that the, these standards apply not only to the realtor in the real estate transaction, but apply to the realtor in general 24-7. So this was a, a rather controversial twist, uh, shall we say. Mm -hmm. But the, uh, the board of directors of the National Association of Realtors, representing about 1.4 million realtors, uh, approved this change, and that is was effective immediately. It was last this month. It was effective, and so we're going to be teaching that to our new members from mm -hmm. here on out. And you know, what our society is somewhat new in the world world of social media. Uh, once you put it out there, it's in writing. And you can't take it back because somebody may share it and share it and share it, and there it goes. Yeah, so that's all the more reason why we need to be very careful in terms of, of how we project ourselves and present ourselves on social media, especially uh, that applies really to anybody. But for us as realtors, uh, we need to keep a clean uh, face, as it were, on our social media trail. Okay, and really what the Code of Ethics is trying to do way back from 1913 is make us a more professional group. So, and with this new policy that came out this past month, it's just trying to make us more professional. Absolutely, Don, because professional behavior does not involve harassing speech and slurs and epithets and saying nasty things about people. That's not at all professional. And by the way, it doesn't, <laughs> help our business either ah 
That's where I was going to go with this. But you're once again, you're a step ahead of me, Ken. <laughs> How does that help your business when a client reads, a potential client reads, wow, this person is uh, pretty hateful towards this or that. Um, that that could really harm your business. So why wouldn't you want to follow this? Well, absolutely. It, it, it's very unlikely that if if you, the your prospective client was one of those groups that you were expressing hate speech about on your social media, that person is not likely to be your client, for one thing. Uh, and maybe you're not even a part of that group, but maybe you feel for that part of the group. Absolutely. that is that We found that to be the case as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to answer my own question. Why wouldn't you want to? I read an article by a guy who, by the way, this was a very biased article, I could tell. The guy must have flunked real estate school or something because he did not like realtors. But what he was saying is, this is horrible, this new code, because it takes away your freedom of speech. What, Ken, what do you think about that? Well, like I say, um, freedom of speech has to be within the lines as well. There's certain, um, that'd be point number one. Point number two, as we've already said, it doesn't, making these kind of harassing comments does not help your business. And the third reason is that we as realtors have a realtor brand to protect. And we, and we, we've spent a lot of money on advertising and, and letting people know that realtors are different. We need to, our walk has to equal our talk. You know, about seven or eight months ago, I had this guy call me and say he wanted to start using me as his realtor. I said, all right. So I met with him and come to find out he'd been using a previous realtor before. I said, well, what happened? Why, you know, why are you making this change? It was because of social media comments. He disagreed with this other person, this realtor who was very, very opinionated about something. And he didn't want to do business with her anymore. So, yeah, it can hurt you. You spend years and years advertising, trying to build a good brand, spend thousands and thousands of dollars advertising, and some uh, not very well thought out post on Facebook or, or Twitter could, could ruin you. Absolutely. That's a, that's a very practical aspect of this. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So is there anything else in that duty to the public that we should talk about? Well, um, we, one of the duties we have to the public is that we're not to provide services outside of our area of competence. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as uh, you probably know, a real estate license allows you to have to do many different endeavors in real estate, many different fields of real estate. Most of us are doing residential uh, real estate, but there's commercial real estate, there's industrial real estate, there's agricultural real estate, there's property management. These are all areas of expertise that our license actually does permit us to do. But our code of ethics says we are not to engage in activities that is outside the field of competence. Here's a great example of this. You know, here I am in residential real estate, worked it for many years. I don't think I would be very effective in agricultural real estate. 
I was just showing a house with a regular size backyard and there was a citrus tree there and the lady said, is that a lime or lemon tree? <laughs> well, it was all still green. I didn't know. Now, if I was going to excel and be competent in agriculture, you'd think I would know the difference. Yes, and actually agriculture is a good example of being a very specialized field because very often agriculture involves large tracts of, of land. And by the way, the ag people are not competent to sell real, uh, residential real estate either by the same token. Right, I, I'm, unless they're an exception to the rule. Exactly. Yeah. With that, we do have to go to our next commercial break, but stay tuned to Welcome Home Radio, 940 ESPN. Country roads, take me home to the place I belong. Well, welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host, and we have Ken Newfeld. Uh, realtor with London, realtor broker uh, with uh, London Properties. What's the difference between a realtor and a broker and a salesperson and a... Well, uh, I'm not the broker, I'm a broker. So that means I am a broker associate, technically speaking. And to go to your question, the difference between brokers and salespersons, uh, there's two different levels of licensing that the California Associate, that the California Department of Real Estate has, the most basic one is the salesperson's license. So a salesperson is licensed to sell real estate, but they must be working under a broker. So a broker is supervising the salesperson. Then you can have a broker who then has to obtain a broker's license, and a broker can also either be a, a managing broker, or can be a owning broker, uh, can be a broker of record, or they can be a broker associate who basically does what I do, which is the same thing as a salesperson, but I have a higher level of license. Okay, so somebody who doesn't wanna move away from their office, like you haven't and, and I haven't, I, uh, I have a bro I'm a broker associate also. You, you and I are two great examples of having a broker's license, but wanting to work not on your own, but with somebody. What, what's your advice to salespersons out there, real, those that hold a real estate sales license? Should they get a broker's license? And what advantage would that be? Well, I guess it depends. The, the main advantage, I think, of getting a broker's license, even as a salesperson, is that you, you just do have, do have a higher level of credential. And I think it, it gains you a certain level of respect and um, authority in the in the field, mm -hmm. um, but it's not necessary. And certainly, um, you and I have both we've shied away from becoming broker owners or of, of supervising salespeople because some of us just don't have the the talent or the desire or the patience for that. And so, um, personally, uh, that that's never been my aspiration. Um, some people who are, have salesperson's license, they want to get a broker's license, they think they're going to be brokers and they're going to be doing this fantastic world of business on their own. Well, I would caution you about that because, Don, you and I have seen the work that our broker of record, our broker owner, puts into running the company, right? Oh, yeah. And if you are going to be the owner of record, you're going to have all that responsibility in addition to selling real estate. So I've always felt it best to leave 
the managing of real estate firms to broker owners. They, they're going to do it much better than I can. And I'm going to just do what I, I'm going to, as they say, I'm going to do me. And that is <laughs> sell real estate. All right. And, you know, I didn't always shy away from that. In fact, in the, the first 14 years of my career, I was in real estate management. Uh, but, and that's why for the next 30, I have shied away from it. Uh, I, it's, I didn't mind the real estate part, but, you know, when we ran out of coffee, uh, <laughs> and you're the manager and you know, well, the, the janitor whole, didn't show up last night. Yeah. Nobody can sell a house because we ran out of coffee or the MLS was down for 30 minutes. It's, oh gosh, just get me in my car and let me go find some houses to sell. And, and that's what I liked. Exactly. Besides there's a difference as you and I do, we deal with clients when you're in management, you deal with the other agents in dealing with their clients. So it's a, it's a different level of, uh, of satisfaction there. I, I still love handing the keys to a first time buyer or, you know, handing the closing check to a seller. That is really good. Um, let's get into disclosures. I think disclosures are really when you and I started, there were no disclosures. Um, you, you might have a seller that says, oh yeah, by the way, you might want to tell the buyer that he better have the sewer line cleaned every three months. Uh, <laughs> but but that was all verbal. So you, you told the buyer that, and then six months later, you're in court, and the buyer didn't remember that. So along comes all these disclosures. Tell us about those. Well, you know, I was thinking back, uh, and you'd mentioned that that I had first worked with a company called Calreal, and I w do have to give credit to my original broker, Hank Jansen, and may he rest in peace. Uh, but I even in the early '80s, he developed a disclosure form that we were to use at at uh, Calreal to for, for the seller to complete to disclose things that were possible negative things or things that would impact the value of the property. So we actually did have a disclosure form in the, within the company, mm. uh, which was sort of a precursor to, uh, I believe it was the late 80s that the real estate transfer disclosure statement became state law, which was actually a statement generated by the legislature in California. And then because the legislature doesn't change it enough, the realtors had to come up with a, an, an additional form called the seller property questionnaire, which asks all the things that aren't on the TDS. For example, on the, I, here I used an acronym, the transfer disclosure statement. That's the one that's required by state law. But um, I remember a few years back, we had to have a, an assembly bill passed that actually added the word mold into it. So that's how cumbersome that form was. This document is changeable only by the legislature. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I don't think it even has solar in there, does it? I'm not sure. Oh, God. I feel a whole lot better now about me not knowing. Because if Ken Newfeld doesn't know it, then it's okay for me not to. Well, the <laughs> um, seller property questionnaire deals with the solar. Yeah. We do, we do get it covered. Right. Um, 
but now there's so many other disclosures. Um, disclosures, there's the statewide buyer and seller advisory, which is a disclosure. And, it, and one of the items in there is if you buy a home on a golf course, there may be errant golf balls that come on your property. Um, amazing that we would need to tell people that. Well, it's tell, a lot of this is telling the obvious, right? Yeah. Um, we did have an interesting change to that document some years ago with regard to the uh, warning regarding swimming pool safety. And um, this actually occurred during the time that I was chairman of the professional standards of the, not chairman of the standard forms committee in California. And we had a realtor here in Fresno whose child had drowned in a pool. And I remember that this realtor was very adamant and talked to me and said, Hey, look, we need to get something onto our disclosure forms to advise people that they need to have these pools properly uh, checked for safety. And, and so that change was made you know, on that particular disclosure form. Hmm. All right. Um, we've seen the, the growth of them though, cause it's gone from four pages or three pages all the way up to, I just did one where they were signing over 50 pages. It's about 50 pages we're doing now, yes. Hey, <laughs> do you think people read them? Well. They're I signing think, that they do though. You know, I, here again, we have, a, going back to the professional standards, we do have a duty to pr promote and protect the interests of our client. And so basically, obviously we can't, we're not gonna read 51 pages there. Um, but it's, it's incumbent on us to let the client know what the general gist of these documents are. And I always advise them, hey, please, here, here's a copy for you to take home and make sure you read it. And if you have any questions, please call me. Mm -hmm. What's your favorite disclosure statement that you feel is the most useful? <laughs> Ken's laughing at me. <laughs> that's a tough, my, that's a curveball, by the my way. My favorite disclosure statement. Because then I'm going to ask you what's your least favorite. Well, <laughs> I would say going to, going to the least favorite, first of all, I would say that the, the earthquake safety disclosure mm. is a little bit of a, probably a least favorite one for me because we're here in the Central Valley in one of the least earthquake prone areas of the state. Now, we understand these forms are statewide, but very often a lot of these forms, the questions are, was your house built on a hillside? Well, no. Um, does, it, does it have uh, cripple walls? No, you know. Well, and that's the question I get all the time. What's a cripple wall? I usually tell them, well, if you don't know what it is, you probably don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> we used to have pictures of them in the, uh, in the in the booklet so mm -hmm. if, when they ask what's a cripple wall i'd open the booklet and say here's a picture what do you have this well no okay yeah yeah okay we do have to go to another commercial break but stay tuned to welcome home radio 940 espn Welcome back to Welcome Home Radio. This is Don Scordino, your host. We have Ken Neufeld, uh, longtime local realtor here in Fresno, Clovis, the Central Valley. 
And you, Mr. Newfeld, are the perfect person for me to inquire what's going on in the market. Give us a general overview, and then I want to get into some of the details of that. Well, you know, a lot of people have asked me uh, that are not familiar with the market. They say, well, I, I suppose the market's really dead with uh, this COVID pandemic, uh, which is actually the opposite is true that maybe not because of the COVID pandemic, but in spite of the COVID pandemic, the market is really pretty pretty hot. Uh, for sellers, the, the sellers are obtaining record high prices and buyers are competing for uh, properties. Uh, as, and it's very difficult very often for a buyer to find the right property uh, that they can afford and that they're not beat out by eight other offers. But here's an interesting take. So sellers are getting record high prices while buyers are getting record low cost, meaning the interest rates are at a record low. So the cost of owning has gone way down. Yes, we are at an all-time low for interest rates. We're, we're, uh, I believe we're, some lenders are below 3%, and uh, that is really a phenomenal. Uh, by the way, if you're a veteran, uh, I'll put a plug in for veterans, by the way, that uh, the, the VA rate is even lower than the, than the regular FHA and conventional rates. So uh, if, if you're a veteran, now's a good time to be thinking about getting a, a refi or a purchase. Yeah. So a veteran can refi, too, using, and I think even if they don't have a VA loan now, they can refinance their home uh, under the VA program. I would think so, as long as they have eligibility left. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I just had a client do that, so I, I know they can. Now, um, sellers, though, sometimes put a nix to the VA program. Why would they do that? Well, this is the unfortunate part. of the. I just finished plugging the benefit of the B, VA program. Unfortunately, the VA program tends to be, the, at least anecdotally, I, I don't want to be adversarial or accusatory here, but anecdotally, the the seller has to put up with more conditions and a tougher appraisal uh, than a regular loan, and sometimes not, but I've seen it happen. And then also in a with a VA loan, typically all of the work on the pest control report needs to be done, whether those are recommend, recommended items like that are called section two items or whether they are actual infestation section one items, everything on the pest report needs to get done. I think there's some exceptions to that, but that's for the most part, that's the general perception out there. Mm -hmm. What's your take on this? You have sellers that say, oh, well, my house is gonna sell in hours. Um, and, you know, cause so-and-so down the street just sold theirs and uh, they want some exorbitant price. Is it really that easy for a seller? Without a realtor? Yeah. <laughs> with or without? You with or without a realtor. Well, let's say with a, well, let's say with a realtor. Uh, a home could sell within hours. I did have a case last week. Um, we had eight offers. We sold it in 36 hours. And... Uh, we had a the the home down the street was listed at three fifteen the actual the exact same floor plan, and we listed ours at three ten, and we're actually selling it for considerably above three ten, with hmm. multiple offers. 
All right. D- how about does a seller still have to clean up the house, do things? Um... Presentation is everything, I believe. If, you, if they want that sale in 36 hours or in two hours or in two weeks even, the home needs to be presented as well as it's going to be presented on day one. Mm-hmm. Because uh, buyers don't always have the ability to, to see the potential. And if they do see the potential, they're going to say, well, that, that, achieving that potential is going to cost me money. Therefore, I'm going to have to deduct that from what I can afford to pay for this house. So for the seller to get the best possible price and the, in the shortest period of time, they need to prepare the house and uh, have it looking very spick and span, very spiffy. And also, some good photographs certainly help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, since so much is done on the Internet now. Um, I saw a listing the other day. Nice location, nice floor plan, four-bedroom, two-bath. It had been on the market 125 days. Okay, so if things are selling so fast, what are some of the mistakes people can make that would make it go 125 days? Well, it may have been overpriced initially to start with and maybe still be overpriced. Um, even in a, in a not as good a market as we have right now, we used to say if it hasn't sold in 30 days, it's by definition it's overpriced. And probably in today's market, if it hasn't sold in two weeks, it's overpriced. Mm-hmm. Okay, so pricing is big. So then they so then they drop the price and they they gradually taper down on the price, but they're trailing the market, and so it, that makes it stay on the market longer. And of course, buyers I always say I've been to the buyer's school, the buyer's school they teach them to ask questions like how long has it been on the market? So the longer it's been on the market, the more depreciating the value uh, of the property in the buyer's mind. You know, I'd sure like to get an internship to teach at that buyer school <laughs> because I would, there's a few things. Days on the market doesn't necessarily mean it's overvalued because what if the price reduction was yesterday? Exactly. The other one is price per square foot. Ah, that one. You hit a hot button for me there. <laughs> okay, you take it away because... That's a hot button for me, too. Well, you know, we, we kind of do this to ourselves even. And, and because property gets appraised by a price per square foot. But it depends on what's in those square feet, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so you could have some very deluxe square feet that are quite expensive. You could have some very basic square feet that are not worth as much. And so you can't just compare price per square foot of one house to price per square foot of the other and think you're comparing apples to apples. The other thing that, that people do in this price per square foot comparison is that they are comparing, say, the price per square foot in a 1,200 square foot home with the price per square foot in a 1,600 square foot home. Those last 400 square feet are not as valuable as the first 1,200 square feet. Both those houses have a 6,000 square foot lot. They both have a kitchen. They both have two bathrooms. They both have a two-car garage. The only thing the 1,600 square foot has more is a little more stucco, a little more two-by-fours, a little bit more composition roof, Maybe a few extra outlets, but that's about it. <laughs> All right. The other thing that price per square foot doesn't take into account is the swimming pool, the big yard, the location, new roof versus old roof, dual pane windows versus single pane windows. That stuff doesn't factor in there. 
Right. It's more. It's a. It's a much more subjective. We need to be much more subjective in how we determine valuation and try to see things as as realtors when we assist sellers in pricing. We need to try to see things through the buyer's eyes to anticipate what a willing buyer is likely to do when they see this property. Mm-hmm. All right. So. Um how about on the buyer's side now? Uh, some buyers get excited. They want to get out there and start looking. They've seen homes on the internet, but they're not, they haven't talked to a lender yet. What's your advice there? Well, very obviously, the very first thing they need to do is they need to be in touch with a lender. Now, they can certainly, it's, we love it if they're in touch with us first to help them in their home search, but the very first thing we're going to tell them to do is let's get together with a lender. We may have several lenders that we could recommend, for example, uh, but we need to get them pre-qualified pre or pre-approved, whatever language you want to use, because it is expected in this market that your offer is going to be accompanied by a pre-approval letter. And so, the, and there are varying degrees of approval letters. So let me go back to the very, very beginning of this show and point that out. And that is where I said you wouldn't go into a football game without a, a game plan. Well, if you don't have a pre-approval letter and you're going out looking at homes, you don't have a game plan. And you can't, it, once you, if you found the right home and you tell the seller, oh, well, here's my offer, but I'm not pre-approved yet, ah, you probably don't have much of a shot. Absolutely, and especially if you're if the seller's looking at at eight or nine offers, uh, the ones with pre-approval letters, and especially the stronger pre-approval letters, they're the ones who are going to get the top consideration. When you say a stronger pre-approval letter, can you expand on that? Well, some of these pre-approval letters are not really worth the paper they're written on, because they're so full of disclaimers. So and and. It's okay for there to be some disclaimers because most pre-approval letters will have some disclaimers that are like it's subject to getting a prelim, a preliminary title report, subject to an appraisal, you know, subject to verification of employment. The obvious things. The obvious things. But then, they, but then there's some other pre-approval letters that say, hey, we've checked your credit report, we've got your application, and uh, we've checked your ability to pay the down payment. If that's all in there, uh, that is a stronger pre-approval letter than one that, hey, these people have been to my office and we think they can make this, we can make them alone. Sure, because you could technically get approved over the phone just by a conversation and you tell the uh, loan officer, yeah, I make $5,000 a month. Well, if they haven't verified it, that's not as strong of a uh, pre-approval as if they have actually seen the pay stubs and the W-2s. So that, that is really important. Um, Ken, as we wrap up the show, what is your best real estate advice? Best real estate advice, I would say, in this, especially in this market, you do need to work with a real estate professional. You need to work with a realtor. Uh, it used to be you could just, a seller could just find a buyer and go into escrow, and it's a, it's a done deal. Uh, Real estate is much more complex, much more intricate, um, more subtleties involved, and a good real estate professional, a good realtor is the one to guide you through that with your game plan. 
Yeah, I like that with your game plan. Um, and I do want to remind everybody, you have a few hours left to go to and donate blood at any of the Central California blood centers for the Gerard Lozano Memorial Blood Drive. We would really appreciate it if you could do that. Go to FresnoRealtors.com, click on the Gerard Lozano Blood Drive button, and uh, pick your time and place. There are several locations. Thank you very much, Ken Newfeld. Thank you to our listeners, and we'll be back again next week. Thank you.